many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked. Now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio. And your host is Laura Redmond. On this program, Laura will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here is your host, Laura Redmond. Hello, welcome back to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond, and I'm really jazzed about our program today. Feel Good Naked Radio is the program that you get to listen to each week with the intention of giving you takeaway tools to live a more embodied life. And I do believe that to be fully embodied, we must be awake in our mind, our heart, our spirit, and our body. So today I'm going to focus on the notion of the spirit. We're going to take it as far as it will go from the spirit to the body, to the mind, and to the emotions. But the focus is going to be on having a conversation with a real life yogi. She calls herself a yogini. And this woman is the true idea of what yoga means. And I don't even think most of us understand what yoga is or what it means. And I wanted to bring her on today to give all of our listeners an understanding of not only yoga on the mat, but yoga off the mat. So I want to introduce my guest. Her name is Britt B. Steele. Britt has a master's degree in public health is a former clinical researcher at the University of Arizona and has been teaching yoga for nearly 25 years. Together, she and her husband built a yoga retreat center in the coastal foothills of Oregon, the only one of its kind in the United States, where she hosts retreats, immersion-style teacher trainings, and where she lives her yoga. She is dedicated to bringing traditional yoga teachings into modern life and offering its wisdom in ways that are both accessible and inclusive. Britt is the author of Pilgrim, Living Your Yoga Every Single Day, and its corresponding 108-day virtual course. Britt has been featured in Mind Body Green, Elephant Journal, Mantra Magazine, Mary Jane's Farm, Yoga International, and was most recently featured as a soulful entrepreneur on Annapurna Living. Britt is attentive to who she is and how she lives, and I want to introduce her. Hi, Britt. Hi, Laura. Thank you for having me. (laughs) It's such a pleasure to have you, and I was recently speaking to someone who's one of your many followers, and she said, Britt is the real deal. She is one of the few people that lives her message and that embodies yoga from the inside out. So how does that feel to you to hear someone describe you that way? Uh, it's it's an honor to hear myself described in that way, and I'd say that that's really what I aspire to do and be. I find that uh, I want what I do behind closed doors and in my inside world to 
be the same in the outside world, like there's no difference, that there's an integration and an alignment. So to hear that is a testament that the practices I do and the work that I do is on the right path, I suppose. Well, and especially because, and I want to start with this whole understanding for the listeners, you know, yoga is so popular. I don't think anyone believed it would become as popular as it's become in the world. It's sort of the Starbucks of movement. And, you know, it's, it's everywhere you look, it's on every corner. There's all sorts of teacher trainings and people saying that they teach yoga and, and it's almost hard to understand the meaning of it when it has become so oftenly used in language and offered in studios um, I, I, I want to say with a lack of authenticity, because I think that to really do what you do is a commitment and it requires a certain authenticity that is not commonly felt in the yoga world anymore. And I hear this from a lot of people. So part of why I'm so honored to have you on is you're the real thing. You are someone that is Uh, a yogi, a yogini, as you describe. And I want everyone to understand what yoga is. And, and many people I know think it's simply a physical practice. So let's, let's open with you just giving a description to our listeners as to how you would define yoga. Hmm. Well, the first thing that always moves through me when I'm asked that question or when I ponder that question is that yoga actually isn't really something that we do. It's what we are. And the many of us heard, many of us have heard that the word yoga means to yoke or it means union, but we don't necessarily know what we are yoking, what we're bringing together or what we are unifying. And my understanding and the way that I bring yoga forth in the world is to look at how the union of who we are on the inside and who we are on the outside, who we are behind closed doors and who we are out in the world are in alignment. We're yoking those. Uh, We're putting our bones out, if you will, so that we're healing what needs to be healed behind closed doors, the things that we might be ashamed of or have held us back. And we're moving into, we're bringing light to the darkness because it's always been my sense that when light and darkness both enter a space, light always wins. And so yoga is essentially our true nature that at the core of all of what we do in life, all the roles that we play, uh, mother, wife, manager, toilet cleaner, laundry folder, master magician, writer, author, you know, all these different roles that we each play, that at the core of those, there is a wholeness that exists. And that wholeness is our true nature, and that is what yoga really is. And then when we go to the yoga mat, 
we bring it to the body and we look at how we can balance what we're doing with our right side of our body and our left side of our body in a way that is balancing sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system or you know, fight or flight with rest and recovery, the part of us that's working when we're resting and the part of us that's working hard when we're wide awake, we're bringing those into alignment so that the, the distance between our human beingness and the part of us that thinks we have to be a human doer is really softened. And so we can relax into our lives when, uh, when we're not performing a ton or producing a lot or showing up the way that we want to. We can relax into our hearts more easily. And at the same time, when we're going really hard and fast and the world or our lives are asking a lot of us, we're also able to feel and sense that there's a stillness and a wholeness and a limitless well that we can access. Wow. So that's what I would say. It's, it's a lot, but that's what, that's, that circles me back to that yoga is not just something that we do. It's who we are. That wholeness, that union, that integration is who we are. So it's a way to create space and find clarity. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And it's, yeah. It's funny because you use the word, or it's interesting that you use the word softness, because I think that we're living in a very hard world. We're living in a very um, rigid and overwhelming culture. And I think that there's not nearly enough attention paid to the miracle of softness and being in our heart space instead of our ego space. So when you were just talking, I was feeling the heart central to the notion and understanding of yoga. Definitely. Yeah. And you, you opened the door for spirituality. And so the, in yoga, the, the heart, there's the physical heart, but then there's also what we call the antikarna, and that's translated as Sanskrit, and I'll speak to that because it's so powerful in and of itself, but the word antikarna is translated into inner instrument. And so it's how we are playing off of and playing everything that comes through us in our lives. And that is really the seat of divinity. It's the place where we are receiving information all of the time if we are soft, and open to receive, and we're not so full or uh, finding ourselves categorizing this as right or wrong or good or bad or black or white or blue or red or any of those things, negative or positive, but instead we're, we're opening ourselves and softening in and looking for where is it, what can I learn from this, where is there goodness in this, what opportunity is available to me in this moment versus saying, oh my gosh, it's horrible that this has happened or I can't believe I'm having to deal with this. There is always, there is always what we call prasad or blessing. Nourishment is the true definition or translation of prasad. There is always nourishment available to us in the most darkest and devastating experiences 
if we are willing to soften and see our lives through our hearts instead of through our conditioning. And really when you say that, Britt, what what I have, I, I feel a sensation in my body when you say that, that is almost like a huge exhale. It's like, oh, thank mm-hmm. God, because I do believe that we work overtime, a lot of people do, to avoid the darkness or to ignore the darkness. And the darkness is, it's been my best teacher. It has given me the greatest understanding of light. I heard yesterday one of my favorite uh, mentors, she was saying that you can't be fearless unless you've lived fear and you can't embrace the notion of fearlessness unless you have danced closely with fear. And I believe that's true with darkness and light as well. I, I can't feel the light unless I have slept with the dark. And that right there is a great takeaway tool because there are many people out there listening right now who are wrestling with that darkness, don't know how to manage it or to embody it and don't believe that it's going to end. So mm-hmm. what what would you say to that? Mm. Well, the, the first thing that just comes <laughs> so clearly to me is uh, um, it's a sutra or a mantra that was given to me by my teacher. And uh, he lived in, you know, he's classically trained in an ashram in India for 35 years, left his home at 17 you know, regular family, off he went, and he taught me this uh, mantra, and it's, it's call and response. So will you, will you do it with me? Yeah. Okay, it goes like this. Oh, fear. Oh, you fear. Your turn. Oh, oh fear. <laughs> I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of you. Come, take my hand. Come, take my hand. You're my best friend. You're my best friend. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> it, just, it almost makes me cry. It's like, it's so simple, and it, I've cried through it many times. Uh, it's, it's so simple. It's not Sanskrit. It's nothing huge, but it's so true. It's like if we can, if we can enter into an experience with sorrow, sadness, fear, loss, um, our binding desire for things to be different than they are, if we can enter in to any life experience with a willingness to say, come with me, you've come here for a reason, come with me, oh fear, come, take my hand, you're Mm. my best friend, let's go, I'm not afraid of you, it offers up an opportunity for us to step into our lives in a way that we're not working, we're not wasting energy resisting what's there anyway, but we're allowing it to be a part of the journey and the unfolding. And when we do that, it's power, as you could feel in that mantra, it's power dissipates. It actually transforms into pure energy, and then it shifts into joy in time. I felt that just saying those words, I, I could, I could feel the, Oh no, wait, fear. And then, Oh, okay. Fear, joy, let's go. 
um, it, it's sort of like when I say sometimes to clients of mine, bring that darkness to the table and invite it to dinner. Have a have yeah. a meal with it. Be be a welcoming soul. Don't push it away because it will not go away. So you must yeah. welcome it. You must invite it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Britt, I want to know, I've been dying to ask you, um, what brought you from being an everyday woman in the world to a yogini? And, and maybe you can also explain to our listeners what you mean by the word yogini. But take mm-hmm. us on your journey from living in the life of, of an everyday woman and being just wherever you might have been. Take us to where you went and to how you got from there or where you were and how you got from there to here. Yes. So first of all, simply stated, uh, uh, the term yogini is just a, a woman who has devoted herself to the practice of yoga. So hmm. a yogi is uh, a, a male and a yogini is a female, both along the same lineage. There's a tendency, however, because of the nature of the divine feminine, uh, for a yogini to be less about the really strong physical asanas and the poses and the practices like we see in the West, and there's more of a tendency for her to align herself herself with the rhythms of nature the uh, rhythms of the moon, the cycles of the moon, and uh, just the intuitive forces that are naturally at play in, in a woman's life. And so that's where the yogini piece comes from. And my life really has unfolded in this way uh, as it's really been a beckoning from the darkness. I, uh, as, a, as a young woman. I had big dreams of getting married and having a family and really living in that space of the white picket fence. And it just, it didn't happen for me. And I fought depression and I found in my twenties that I was making choices that were uh, contrary to what I had said I would ever do. I mean, I looked at my parents and said, I'm never going to do that. And there I was doing exactly what I said I never would do. And uh, I gradually found yoga as a way, when I was maybe 25, 26, uh, as a way to not have to take uh, antidepressants and migraine meds and um, ulcer meds. It was just thinking, this is not really going to take me where I want to go. And so I signed up for a six-month-long, three mornings a week before I went to work yoga practice and found that in those six months that um, as hard as it was, and it was very hard, it was taught by this woman, I'll never forget, she always wore a white unitard, one of those very 70s styles, white unitard. She had long, gray, curly hair. She was probably in her mid-50s, and she just, she kicked my butt in these classes, and not because she was pushing me so hard, but because she was asking me to sit with myself and to slow down and to stop running away from my own pain or self-medicate or... uh, chase a dream that was outside of myself. And I found that after the end of those six months that 
I didn't need the uh, migraine meds anymore. I didn't need antidepressants, and I wasn't having the tummy issues that I was having before. So for years, I used it as my medicine, uh, really. I used it to keep me sane and to keep my body functioning well. And then eventually I found that it was helping me in so many other ways in my life. It was allowing me to put, it was like a cog in a wheel. It was allowing me to take pause between something happening in my life and me just going off the handle and reacting or going off the deep end and reacting, whatever that may be, emotionally, mentally, physically, it didn't matter. I was able to put a pause in that came just from the physical practice where I like to say that we know our yoga is working when we have less reaction, less frequency of reaction, less intensity of reaction, and a quicker recovery time. And that doesn't matter if it's the flu or if it's uh, an experience where you bear witness to losing a loved one or bad news. It It doesn't matter where that falls on the spectrum. So I started going deeper, and I ended up finding a teacher in when I was living overseas, and that's my traditional Vedanta teacher. He teaches the traditional ancient yogic um, lessons, and it's not a religion. Yoga is not a religion at all. It's inclusive and can hold sacred space for whatever your uh, uh, religious affiliation is or is not, and it's a means of knowledge to recognizing your true nature. And so I went into that journey, you know, all the while I was working professionally, I was moving through my own career. And I just found at one point about 12, 15 years ago that I wanted to bring it to the forefront more. And so I really began to to do that through teaching classes beyond the yoga poses. I'd always been teaching fitness and yoga classes. And and it's just really in the last decade it's it's been my it's been the one thing that's always, always been reliable for me. And it teaches me how to be in my marriage. It teaches me how to be in my body. It teaches how to me de- it teaches me how to deal with things I don't like teaches me not to get too attached to things that I love. Uh, and, and that is, you know, that's really been the journey. And then I'll say that, I'll tell you one other quick piece that was about, I guess, it's been about four years now. Um, I was, we built our farm and we were still in construction and I had a horse trainer here and I was working with a horse that I no longer have, um, and my husband doesn't ride horses at all. My husband's 22 years young, or older than me, 22 years older than me. And we were, I was out doing a session with my horse, and I 
I was working with this trainer, and my husband was just leaning on the rail, and she was working with the horse and said, hey, you know, okay, now you come in and do what I just did. And I said, okay, but I I need to run in the house real quick. So I ran in the house and used the restroom, and as I was coming out the front door of the house, I I heard screaming, I need help, I need help, and I ran out, I mean, it's quite a jaunt, but I ran to the out toward the round pen where the horse was, and I saw my husband lying flat on his back Mm. next to the horse. Uh. And I said, is he conscious? And she said, no. And I just circled around. I didn't go to the round pen. I just knew. I circled around, and I ran back to the front of the house. And as I was coming back to the house, I started chanting. And the chant that came to mind for me was one that I learned from my teacher. It's Om Namah Shivaya. And Shiva is the aspect of divinity that is the transformer. It's the renovator. It's the aspect of divinity that, you know, is a storm, is a fire, is total transformation. It helps burn through anything that we're experiencing. And I just started chanting inside, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. And I felt like I was splitting within myself between this chant and this very calm, cognizant, aware part of me that was saying, okay, you need to call 911. You have a landline that's locked to the wall. I was on a, we had a corded phone because we thought that would be cool to be, to have our old farmhouse really be old farm style. So I didn't even have a handheld phone. And I ran, I ran in the house. I called 911. I went through the steps. Um, I ended up, uh, the the doesn't even really matter, but the bottom line is the um, the dispatcher wasn't even sure what to do with me because she was saying, you know, don't leave the phone. And I said, I'm going to leave the phone. No, stay with the phone, ma'am. I said, listen to me. I'm calm. I'm leaving the phone. I'll send someone back to the phone to give you the information because she didn't understand that I was stuck on a landline. She's probably used to cell phones everywhere on the oh. on God's green earth. Oh. So I go back out and. Um, uh, he had not regained consciousness, but he did have a pulse. And I just felt calm. And I was, you know, I told the horse trainer, back up, sit down. This is not about you. We'll get to you in a minute. I told the people that were working on, we had construction workers. I said, please go back to your jobs. You know, you, this one gentleman, I said, I want you to go to, out to the corner of the road and look for the ambulance and direct them in when they come. And I just waited. And I just waited. And he was breathing and he had a heart rate. And um, then he started to come too. So I just I I knew that no matter what happened, I, I wasn't I just wasn't panicking, and I was in this space where I knew no matter what there was something happening that was bigger than me, and everything was going to be okay, even mm. if I lost him. Mm. And ooh. And there were days later when I for sure went through big emotional detoxing and just wailing and releasing and letting all of that go. But the fact of the matter was I had 100% confidence that the way that yoga had been programming my nervous system and my physical body had shown up in the time when I needed it the most. And Mm. so often we reach for... Oh, the way I know how to describe this is so often we reach for, 
Like we want to learn how to swim as soon as our boat capsizes. <laughs> that is mm. not the time to learn to swim. The time to learn to swim is when things are going smoothly or when the water's just a little rocky and you go, you know, I should probably work on this, but not well, that... when you're out in the middle of nowhere. And so in that way, the, the practices that I do every day are what keep me grounded, keep me sane. They're really, they're my, it's my medicine, it's my best friend, it's my spiritual teacher, it's my therapist, it's all of that. And it can be all of that, and it's not dogmatic. <laughs> it's, and I'm, totally an, I'm totally evangelical about it because it's my whole world, and I love that it is so universally accessible to anyone and everyone, wherever they are. And it changed everything for me, and I see the same in my students. So there's an earful for you and the listeners. What happened to your husband? Just tell us how he oh, yeah, is yeah. today. So he came to, and uh, um, he 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 was he had fallen off of the horse. He'd gotten on the horse, oh. and the horse had ulcers, really bad ulcers himself. And so when my husband tried to scoot forward, the horse freaked out, and and um, my husband went off of the horse and had a major concussion. And oh. so we ambulanced him into trauma unit. Uh, we trauma united him into the hospital, and he was there for some time. And then we slowly nursed him back to health over the next five or six weeks, just working through body stuff more than anything. But he he survived and was fine. And uh, yeah, that's what that's what happened. He's here well, that's, with me now. Oh, I'm so thankful to know that. And mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that story for me is the definition of equanimity. The way you described every moment of that story, Um, my teacher, my guru has often said to me, you don't know when you're going to need mindfulness. You don't know when you're going to need to have equanimity. But if you practice every single day, a meditation practice that is 21 minutes every morning, you will find this equanimity when you need it, but you won't know it's there until it's there. You will only know it when that tragedy or that trauma shows up unexpectedly. And there you are present, calm, thinking, allowing, embodied. You're not, you know, in some altered state, you're right there. And so how do you define equanimity? Is that a fair definition or description in, in your opinion? Yeah, it's where the, it's, it's that, um, I like I define it as sacred gray. It's not black or white. It's not good or bad. You're just in that timeless uh, space where we are. We're just able to navigate whatever's coming and whatever's leaving. And you know, life is not happening to us. It's moving through us, and we're able to say yes to whatever's coming. Whether we like it or not, we're just not bound to it being a certain way or not being a certain way. And whatever's exiting or leaving, we're able to say, yes, this, it's time. This is, I might not understand it, but it has served its, served its purpose, apparently, whether I can see that or not and move it through. So I see it as, I like to call it sacred gray. It's not black or white. It's that central space where everything is in balance and has purpose and meaning whether we can see it or not and there's an everything is on equal ground an energetic equal ground 
So I completely agree with, with what, you're, what you're saying, what your teachers taught you. And none of us know, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, who I adore his teachings, and, and he was introduced to meditation while studying molecular biology, and he believes that scientists make the best meditators because they're most comfortable with knowing what they don't know. <laughs> and so, yeah. Yeah. You know, in a way, the practice is is the practice, and it it is daily, and it is imperative because none of us know what we don't know, but it will be there for you when those moments like the one you described occurs. So I want you to help our listeners with some some ideas because I think one of the things that you and I can speak of firsthand is living a mindful life. But let's say there's a listener out there who is utterly disembodied and overwhelmed and believes there's no time to do any of these sorts of rituals or practices, um, you know, does not feel that they have even the choice, which is its own mental um, game. But what would be something that you would give to that person as a first step tool in a very uh, un or non-mindful life? How to yeah. get started? What would be that tool? Well, the first thing I would say is get outside and go for a walk because nature in and of itself is um, a powerful teacher and is, is the most potent healer. And so if it feels like there's not time to go for a walk, then let that walk be a time when there's other learning that's happening. We are blessed to live in a technological era where there's so many beautiful podcasts so find a podcast that inspires you and is providing you with uh, information that's going to be valuable to get all those things done that you feel like you can't break away from to sit and meditate and take those with you on a walk. And while you're walking, simultaneously split your attention between taking really long, deep breaths. I tend to inhale for four steps and then exhale for four steps. Just inhale two, three, four, exhale two, three, four. And I get my breath in rhythm with my feet, and then that starts to happen, and then I just listen to whatever I'm listening to. Um, if podcasting isn't something that people are interested in, I'd say find two or three pieces of music that have really great inspirational lyrics, things that um, raise your vibration and average you up. <laughs> and even if it's not how you feel, fake it till you make it and play even 10 minutes of a walk and do a walk with music that way. And then whether it's the podcast or whether it's the um, walking to 10 minutes, literally take, you know, start with three minutes and have just a three-minute sit. When you, before you get back in the house, just sit on the porch steps or whatever. Just take a rest, sit on the curb, and just listen to a piece of music and slow down your breathing. And I would say no lyrics in this piece of music and let your eyes close and let that be your meditation. And what I would say is that some of the more recent research suggests that we begin to train the brain meditatively with as few as seven minutes a day of meditation. I steep my tea for longer than that. So mm. if I can take the time that I steep my tea 
or while, you know, if you're a coffee drinker, while your coffee's being made or while your toast is down. And just take that time, even if you're not seated, and stand and just turn your attention inward to your breath. And then if the body feels compelled to stretch, stretch. What happens is we start to listen to the internal messages of the body and we want what we add to our lives to be so small in the beginning that it's not disruptive. And I think one of the things that I've witnessed over the years is people who need meditation the most couldn't possibly sit still to meditate. And so, so true. we you know, and so if we so meet true. ourselves where we are in the busyness, in the I gotta learn this, I gotta listen to this, I gotta study this, I gotta do this. I need to exercise, whatever it is, and integrate those things together. Listen to a recipe podcast, a a food podcast. If you have to think about what you're going to make dinner for your family, it doesn't matter. Just let the body start moving, and that that walking um, also helps to uh, align right and left brain because you're essentially crossing right arm with left leg, et cetera, as as you walk. So that'd be one of the first things that I would start with and keep it really simple and manageable and not too huge. And don't let the weather be the reason you don't walk. You know, I, I often, my favorite walks sometimes are in the rain. Um, I live in Oregon and, and so the rain is for me just one of those wonderful moments to say, Oh, it's only water and it's okay. If I get wet, um, there are layers to put on the body. If it's cold, there's no reason not to go take a walk. And the walk is the way to really reevaluate the conscious mind, because I believe it takes you deeper into the unconscious, which is a friend, no matter whether there is dark or light within that unconscious. Exactly. No, I completely agree. I, I, I uh, concur with you that my best walks are when, when it's cool and wet, it just mm-hmm. it's grounding and all of the impurities of the air are just being washed down to the earth. So what remains is I just get this really fresh, clear, clean air. So I completely, completely agree. And you use the word grounding, which is, in my way of thinking, the opposite of overwhelmed. So I think just the word grounding, um, sometimes I find it useful to put a rock in my hand, which can can physically make me feel um, grounded. And I think when we're overwhelmed, we feel the opposite sensation. There is no sense of up, below, right, left, transverse side. There's a sense that everything is spinning or turning or um, making you almost have a sense of, of nausea or or a, a dizziness. So mm-hmm. we're talking a lot about the embodied power. And I started the show by saying that I think embodied is so much bigger than the body, but what I'm hearing you say, and I firmly believe, is that the body is this amazing messenger. So everything is happening and going through the body. It's happening in your blood. It's happening in your skin. It's happening in your muscles, your bones, your tendons, your ligaments. So to allow your body to be grounded, to allow your body to breathe, that in itself can be a wonderful takeaway tool for someone who is in that dizzying state of disembodied overwhelm. Definitely. That's, yeah, I I completely agree. And 
Another thing I didn't mention that I always do, um, when I walk, I grab something from nature. I don't care if it's a leaf that has fallen or if I gather a cedar frond or a blade of grass or a stone, and I bring it in. Um, I bring it into my desk, and it's just my constant reminder. And so when I walk, and you know, and I don't, I, I offer reverence to those things, but they're not like huge. I don't, I don't collect them. I also let them fall away as soon as something starts to get wilty, or maybe just sits there for the afternoon, and then I just say "Om" and pass it on. Um, <laughs> but to me, it's also a reminder that I'm part of this natural world. That when I am in balance, when I am in balance, to be clear, that I am grounded like the earth. I'm stable, steady, rooted, patient, reliable. That's when I am in balance in earth. When I'm in balance in water, I'm fluid, I'm nourishing. I'm able to change speeds and change directions and change forms. When I'm in balance with fire, the third of the five elements through yoga, I'm clear and bright I'm upward rising. I'm warm. And when I'm, cl- when I'm uh, in balance with air, I'm inspired. And I'm free and able to move. I'm mobile. And when I am in balance with space or with ether, I- I'm, I- nothing, nothing is separate. I'm just in that place of, of everything is part of the whole. There's a mantra in yoga that translates into everything comes from fullness, exists in fullness, and returns to fullness. Never was there a time, is there a time, or will there be a time when fullness is not here and now? Mm. Mm. And so that I always look at the five elements as my teachers to... You know, I bring them into my house, I bring them into the way that I care for my body, I bring them into my food that I feed myself, I bring them into my yoga practices and my meditations, because I'm always feeling like the earth is a great teacher. It lets go of what it doesn't need, and it shakes things up when things need to be shook up, whether I understand it or not, whether it makes sense or whether it's polite. (laughs) And I allow for this whole wisdom of the natural world to influence me so that I recognize and remember that I'm, and I literally mean that, remember, like bringing all these different parts, these members, back into the collective of who I am as part and parcel of this wholeness, of this yoga. So, yeah. Britt, does forgiveness play a part in this I wanted to bring up the idea of forgiveness because when you're talking about nature, one thing I always note is how forgiving it is. You know, mm-hmm. even even when there is like a catastrophic storm or um, something that is 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 so big and so much larger than any of us, there's a forgiveness. There's a way that it recalibrates and comes back together and. And, and I just keep feeling this sense that there's a connection here to the notion of forgiveness. Yeah, so, um, you know, there's so many ways to, to address this. What I'll say is that um, 
through the lens of yoga, the divine spirits, we use the word Ishvara very often, and Ishvara is translated into the one that you worship. <laughs> so if it's, if it's Jesus, great. If it's the Buddha, great. If it's Shiva, great. If it's Muhammad, great. If it's nature, great. If it's something you call spirit, great. If it's the universe, great. Whatever it is, it's something mm-hmm. bigger than us. So through, through that lens, that energy, it's not even an, an entity, it's the, it's the cause of the entire universe. That energy is, it's, it's all forgiving. It's the forgiver, the forgiving, and the forgiven. And so if we look at it on a really pragmatic level, uh, if I'm seeking forgiveness, or if I'm longing to offer forgiveness or knowing that that would be of value to me, the, the phrase that my teacher always says is, take it to the altar. So the one who is the ultimate giver, this divine cause of the universe, is the one who's given me everything, every pain, every sorrow, every challenge, every struggle, every boon, every blessing, everything I've ever gotten has come from that ultimate giver. And so I, I go to the altar and I give it back. And I say, you gave this to me, take it back. And, and, and in that space, instead of um, making amends with another human being, I dump everything on the altar. Sometimes that altar is the river, standing at the riverbed and screaming or crying or just rah, moving energy. Sometimes it's that. But I recognize that I'm letting, I'm letting all of these things that are perceivably good and bad or worthy or in need of forgiveness pass through me as pure energy. And when, I, when they get gummed up, I give them back to the ultimate giver. So there's definitely a place for forgiveness in, in, in yoga, and it's... It's largely at the stage where we still feel like we could possibly do anything wrong or someone else could possibly do anything wrong. So, for example, let's say that um, you're, you're getting ready for a Thanksgiving dinner and you're in someone else's house and that person is saying, you know, can you... Or this person saying, uh, wash this and put this on the table and move that and cut this and get that out of the fridge and go run that out to the porch and fill this up and, you know, throwing orders. And the perception is that that person is really bossy and we want that person instead to be kind to us and be more gentle with us. There's not so much a need for forgiveness for their abruptness as much as there is a high value in me shifting the lens through which I see it and say, oh, this is how she's asking me based upon her experience, based upon how she's been raised and her conditioning. Hmm. And once I do that, then I don't feel like I have a need to change another person, or I don't even feel like I need to change me. I simply accept things as they are. There's a word we use in yoga, namaha. It means 
I just give it back to the ultimate giver. I lay it down. I let it go. In the name of all things that are whole and holy, I let go. I move back to this space of acknowledging that I'm getting really worked up about this, and the gift in it is my reaction. If I'm reacting, if I'm hurt, if I'm frustrated, if there's a reaction deep within me, that that reaction is actually the blessing. Because now what's been going on inside of me has been brought to the surface, and I have something to deal with that wasn't doing me any good on the inside. So I don't mean to circle around forgiveness. There's for sure a place for it, but it has more to do with bringing it back to the source of all things that we feel are the reason that we even need to consider forgiveness Mm. versus going to a person or personality who may or may not be able to manage be in a place to receive us. Oh, that's so. beautifully, that, that's so beautifully said, because I often feel now in my journey that if I'm triggered or reactive or have a unpleasant response on the inside to something or someone, it's the exact thing I need to go work on. And so yeah. then there's, there's a forgiveness to myself for, you know, it, it or would it, it, it's somewhat, it's self-compassion and forgiveness kind of combined or blended where I realize it's okay that you're triggered, Lar. You know, just you have your next lesson all lined up and ready. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You've and got your next that... assignment. Oh, go ahead, please. I just said you have your next assignment, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I find that it's also like if I get I don't want to put myself on a pedestal in comparison to how I think I should be or how anyone else thinks I should be either. Because if all of a sudden I wake up one day and somebody pushes all my buttons and I'm like, oh my gosh, I am so frustrated, I'm so angry, I'm so hurt, I also have to be able to say, yes, yes, I'm angry, I'm hurt. I just want to direct it in the proper way. I want to feel it completely, let it be there, it's sacred as anything. Those emotions, that fear, that sadness, that that hurt, whatever it is, it's part of the whole picture. I, I want to honor that, too. And, and my teacher always says, sanctify, I hope I can say this, sanctify your bitchiness, <laughs> he says. Yeah. And, and what he means is, you know, stop thinking you don't have to be a bitch, but let it be holy and take it to the altar. When that comes mm-hmm. up, bring it right to the altar. That's the, in yoga, that's Kali and Durga, those big, ugly, mean goddesses, those faces <laughs> of divinity. You know, it's also the, the mama tiger who can just, she can snap the neck of a gazelle without even thinking twice. <laughs> that's the power of it. And so we want to let that be there, too. We just want to not take it out on someone else who may or may not be able to receive it. And we never know that until... We're on the other side of it. So why take that risk? You know, why, why put it on someone else and dump the monkey of suffering onto someone else's back? So, yeah. And the, so, so take us through when someone is enlightened as you are and you have a trigger um, and you bring it to your altar and you take a walk and, and you go into a process that is your own way of filtering it or understanding it. 
give, just give us a little more language, what that would look like in a yogini's life, um, so that we can feel the, the texture of that own experience that we may have that can be uncomfortable. Right. Okay. So first, I wish you could have seen my face when you said someone as enlightened as you are, because it was like I smelled something really bad. Um, mm. yeah. I'm, I'm the first to say that I, I'll say this. If someone says they're enlightened, they're not. <laughs> And and I don't feel at all enlightened. I feel like I'm just right on this journey with everybody else. Um, I've just I, I've just found some tools that really work for me. And so one of those tools, um, and I appreciate you saying that. I, I very much find that to be sweet. And if um, if you still think I'm enlightened, just come and you know, talk to my husband for about 15 minutes, and I'm sure <laughs> well, he'll he'll straighten you <laughs> straighten you out. Um, but what I do, I, I do, I use some of the traditional things I've known. I journal, and I journal really freely. I go back to the roots of um, the artist's way. I mean, I put it all Morning down. Papers. I don't worry yeah. about. Say again. Morning papers. She called it in the book the artist's yeah. way. Yeah, the morning papers. Right. Yeah, and I do that where I literally, I don't care what I write. It's if I know that I'm going to burn it right afterwards. I can swear, I can curse, I can say anything and everything. I don't even read it again because I don't want to be my own judge. I just write, 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 write. I cry while I'm writing. I move it out in that way. I take it that way. And then I literally have a little metal bowl and I burn it in that bowl. And, and, then the, and I have a mantra that I chant um, that's part of it. It can be anything you can... You can say a prayer, you can chant a mantra if you have one, even the one I mentioned before, Om Namah Shivaya, that's a great one. Um, the sound Om is actually, uh, it's like a nickname for Ganesh, which is the, the one who blows open doorways and clears pathways, the big elephant, like an elephant does. So you could say Om, you can say Amen, you can just sigh, Ha. Ah, you can move energy that way. It doesn't matter while it's burning. It would be great to simply just sound, exhaling H-A, H-A, just as it burns, mm-hmm. this audible sigh. Yeah. Um, and then I have a prayer that I was raised with that I have, um, my teacher has guided me through, and I have actually a recording of it. Um, my, I've done my own recording for my students, which I'm happy to share with listeners. That is a, um, uh, it's the serenity prayer. And that's, you know, God grant me, essentially the the knowing between what I can change and what I can't change and let me let go of the things that I can't change and let me get in there and have the courage to do something with the stuff that I can change. Mm, perfect. And so I go back to that serenity prayer again and again and again. Yep. And those are, you know, those are two of my, or three really, the journaling, the burning of the journal pages because I don't want them anywhere around. I don't want to read them again. That does me no good. There's no reason for me to pass them off to anybody else or for to risk anybody else reading them. And then the, the serenity prayer, the yogi-style serenity prayer, are, are really the tools that those three simple pieces are the ones that I use very, very frequently when I'm feeling gummed up and like I need to move something through me. Britt B. Steele, thank you. I can't believe we're out of time. This has felt like two seconds to me. You are a beautiful light. 
Thank you so much for all that you offer and give and live. And as we close each show with the notion and the message that you complete you. Thank you. Thank you. Um. Um. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Lar Redmond. Please join us again live next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin. <laughs>